looking at the first few verses there, the first ten verses, three things I want to draw out from the psalmist. First is the determination that he has to praise the Lord. Then the explanation that he gives for why he praises the Lord. And finally, an invitation for us all to come and to do the same. It begins, though, with this determination of the psalmist, the king. It's King David in this instance. And it's a determination of the best of Christians at their best moments. It's not, if you look at verse 1, I I might bless the Lord. Maybe I'll bless the Lord, or I know I should bless the Lord. It is this determination. I will bless the Lord or, or praise the Lord at all times. He's determined that the glorifying of God will be the great occupation of his entire life. All waking hours, all seasons of life. And then if you look at the second half of verse 1, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. He enlarges on this idea where the focus is not on the length of the praise, but on the location of the praise. It's in his mouth, which is to say he doesn't just have nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about God in his heart. He speaks them. He declares them. He testifies. He testifies. It's never enough if we love God merely in our heart, but never express it in our words or in our actions. So if our good thoughts of God are mute, they are not good enough. Charles Spurgeon says this, God deserves blessing with the heart, but also extolling with the mouth. Good thoughts in the closet, he says, but good words in the world. And there's a particular group of people that that David wants to share this determination with. You see that in verse 2, the humble. Let the humble hear and and be glad. That same word can be translated afflicted or or poor. Uh, It's the same word that David uses to describe himself in verse 6 of the same psalm. This poor man cried. Same word. Um, It's to those who are poor in the eyes of the world that David is speaking to. Uh, Not the lofty, the rich, the powerful, but, but the humble, those who have experienced great affliction, those who have gone through really difficult trials and hardships. It's to those people that David says, I want you to bless the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 3. Let's magnify the Lord. Now, we can't make God, who is an infinite being, an immense being. He fills all time and space and beyond. We can't make him bigger. But we can make him seem bigger in our lives and in our words. That is to say, depending on how you live, you're either, you are, you're either magnifying God or you're minimizing him. He's either everything to you or he's expendable to you. He doesn't matter all that much. But those who feel of themselves to be very little in the world, to, to be poor and afflicted and humbled, those who feel themselves to be little are the ones who are best situated to make God great. So this is the first three verses of the psalm. David determined to declare the goodness of God, and he, he's willing others to join him in doing so, and that's his determination. But in verses 4 through 7... We find the explanation or the reason why David is so determined. Now, maybe he's anticipating some skeptical reactions from the poor and afflicted when he says, let's magnify God's name. I mean, these are the people perhaps who are thinking, 
I, I, why should I magnify the name of the Lord? I'm going through trials. I don't have much. I, what, what is there for me to thank God for? Why should I offer him up thanksgiving? And so David meets those objections with this personal testimony. Right? Verse 6 is key. This poor man cried. I, I have gone through this. I can tell you why God is worth praising at all times. David's not speaking from the royal palace. He, he's not speaking from uh, an exalted throne with, you know, with his servants fanning him with palm branches, feeding him grapes. That's, that's not the idea here. He, he's, he's at our level. In, in, in fact, in all likelihood, we'll get to this in a minute, David probably wrote this in a cave on the run for his life. Psalm 34, penned in a cave. And he explains what the Lord has done for a poor man like him and, and what God could do for a poor man or woman like you. What David shares here are truths about God that are independent of our circumstances or our station in life. Uh, these are reasons to praise God when we're in that pathetic cave or even when we're in the uh, palace courts. Blessings of God that can't be taken from those who put their trust in the Lord. And if you look at verses 4 through 7, I think you, we could draw out three, three themes of blessing, three, three, three um, reasons that, that David gives for why he should bless God at all times. And they kind of are interwoven amongst each other. He repeats himself a few times. But the first reason is that God can be found. Why should you bless God? Why should you praise God? Well, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. Or again, verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And, and if we took on the, the entire psalm, we would see that he keeps bringing this, this idea up. Uh, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears towards their cry. 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, the humble, the poor, the afflicted. He's, he can be found. That is to say... There is nobody, nobody who, who looks to God, truly looking for him and looking to him, who does not find him. And that's good news tonight. There is nobody out there who wants God and doesn't get him. If you seek the Lord, he will be found. You can picture God as, he's like, is it OnStar? Is that that feature we used to have in our cars, right? Push, push the button, they're there. He's better than that. Better than OnStar. You know, many people waste their lives. Well, they don't realize they're wasting it, but they spend their whole lives searching for something to give them significance, give them uh, satisfaction, give them fulfillment, and they don't find it. What a sad way to, to live the brief life you're given here on earth. But... If you spend your life finding God or seeking fulfillment in God, you find that. You find him. The un unbeliever's life could be, could be scored to that famous song from uh, U2. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have climbed the highest mountains. I've run through the fields. I've run. I've crawled. I've scaled city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In an interview back in the 90s when that song came out, 
uh, Bono, it was an interview with Rolling Stone, Bono said that he wrote that song as an anthem to doubt. Well, Psalm 34 is an anthem to faith. This is an anthem of faith. And that's a much more satisfying way to live. Why should you praise God? Because he can be found. Second, because God doesn't let you down. It's, it's related, isn't it? It follows from the first point. Because you can find him, he won't disappoint you. He doesn't let you down. Think about the Mount Carmel contest with Elijah. You remember that scene in 1 Kings, I want to say 19. I think it's 1 Kings 19, where the, the prophets, the false fake prophets of Baal, they cry out to their gods, their God, to, to come and to answer them, to meet them in their time of need. And, and he doesn't show up. He lets them down. And all of their hopes are lost. Their fears become a reality. They're, they are ashamed. Well, what does David say in verse 5? Those who look to him, God, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. God doesn't let you down. Those who put their boast in the Lord shine with joy. You know, imagine if you're, you're standing outside Michigan Stadium, you know, the big house, as soon as a, a Michigan, Michigan State game is, is letting out, and, and you haven't listened to the radio, you don't know the stats, you don't know any details about what went on inside the stadium, you're just standing there, as people are filing out, you could be able to tell in an instant who won the game, just based on the expression of the fans pouring out, right? Well, David is saying here that there's no one, there's no one who puts their hope in the Lord who then will leave life with their head hanging low, with their shoulders sagging. No, their faces will be radiant. They've won it all because he doesn't let you down. Well, there's a third thing. God delivers his people twice over. David highlights that in those verses that we looked at. Verse 4 and 7. I sought the Lord, he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Here's where the historical setting of the psalm really comes into play. David wrote this on the heels of, um, of a mighty deliverance. He was on the run from Saul, his own king. And the situation was so bad that it took him to Gath. And that should sound familiar to, to you. Boys and girls, do you remember who was from Gath? Goliath, the giant warrior. And this isn't that long after David had killed him. In fact, he's dragging Goliath's sword with him, which would have been a great offense to the people at Gath. But it's kind of like an out-of-the-fire-into-the-frying-pan situation, out-of-the-frying-pan-into-the-fire situation for David, where it's so bad with Saul that Gath almost seems better, but he gets there and he could be killed by that king in revenge for what he did to Goliath, and yet God changes the heart of the king that he says, let him go. And David feels like he's at his wit's end, literally. He pretends like he's crazy to get out of this situation. And then it says he escapes to this cave of Adullam. And so we have this historical deliverance, and, and we see that if that's... And that's what we're told in the superscript of Psalm 34. That's what caused David to write this psalm. Then this psalm is nothing other than a psalm of thanksgiving. It's not just that he wants to bless the Lord. The particular kinds of blessings or praises he wants to give the Lord are praises, songs of thanksgiving because the Lord saved his life. The Lord had delivered him. He sought the Lord and he found him. He 
He put his hopes in the Lord and was not disappointed, and he was delivered. So much for David's explanation of the Lord's goodness. But then he moves finally in verse 8, we'll close with this, to this invitation. He wants you and me to experience the same God and the same goodness that he has experienced. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so in one sense, uh, David is simply saying to those who are poor, those who are humble, those who are afflicted, those who think they have very little reason to give thanks to God because of their life situation, those who think that they have very, uh, that they have uh, no reason to, to come to God, that they're not going to get anything from God, he says to those people, just try him out. That's what he's saying. Just try him out. He says, try it and see. Uh, you'll love it. Some of you are going to have to say that tomorrow with the new dishes that you're presenting your families. Right? And they're a little suspicious of them. Uh, this wasn't on the menu last year. This isn't, no, it's something new I tried. Well, you know, there's been this ad going around on the radio that I keep hearing about. You don't need to have the cranberry sauce at, at it's a Spotify ad. You don't need to have the cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving, just like you don't need to listen to these ads. You know, sign up for Spotify premium so you don't listen to the ads. And I'm thinking, that's all I want is the cranberry sauce. I don't know about you guys, but apparently people don't like cranberry sauce. But there are some things like cranberry sauce, which is so amazing, but you actually have to tell people, no, try it and see. You'll like it. And that's what David's saying about God. Try him. Try him out. You won't be disappointed. Well, how do you try the Lord? Well, the same way you try that dish, you, you taste him, says David. That is, you really have to take him. You really have to, to have him. I think it's a word, this, this image of tasting this metaphor, I think it's the idea of faith. You really have to have faith in him. A faith is not suspiciously staring down the, that whatever that dish is that you're being offered, that, you know, your host is saying, no, just try and see it. That's not faith if you just kind of stare at it. It's not faith if you just ask everybody else, what did they think of it? Faith, at least faith in the host who's offering it to you, is to take it and to taste it. You trust them. You take them at their word. So faith in the Lord is not suspiciously looking at him from afar. It's, it's not... It's not um, just asking other people what they think of him. It's receiving him fully. Uh, the, the root of that Hebrew word, taste, shows up in Numbers 11, describing the Israelites and the manna. Numbers 11.8 says, The taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. How did they know that? How did they know that's what the manna tasted like? Well, they couldn't just contemplate the manna. They couldn't just think about it. They couldn't just look at it. They couldn't just hear about it. They had to put it in their mouths. They had to ingest it. Interestingly, Jesus picks up that scene in a speech to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 6. Do you remember that? When he's talking about the nature of true saving faith. Let me read to you John 6, 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's... That's the foundation for what comes next. Whoever believes has eternal life. Then he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Fascinating what Jesus is saying. He starts with this foundational point. You need to believe to have eternal life. Faith will get you eternity. Whoever believes has eternal life. And what does that belief look like? What is that faith like? It's taking Christ. It's taking all of him. It's, it's feasting upon him. It's relying on him for your soul just like you rely on food for your body. But here's the reality. Unless you do that, unless you fully take Christ and take him into you, you'll never be able to see that the Lord is good. It is only through receiving Christ that you see the goodness of God. Without Jesus, God will only ever be an angry, mean God who, who sends plagues and um, allows war. Or God will just be a transcendent and unknowable deity who maybe set the world in order but, but can't be known on a personal level. Or he'll be some kind of puzzling, mysterious, divine force that's in the world that maybe, you know, with the right meditation you could tap into. But you can't really know him. But if you know him in Christ, if you, you taste and take of the Son, you will see that this God is not impersonal and he's not just a force out there. He's not just an angry God. No, no, no. He is the one who says, I work all things for the good of those who love me. He's a good God. To have him in Christ is to have a God who won't disappoint, a God who can deliver, even from the greatest danger of all, and that's hell. And so I want to ask you, do you have Christ in that way? That's what's going to give you real thanksgiving, real gratitude, is to have the gospel. Have you taken Jesus by faith? Have you tasted and seen that God is good in his son? Are you filled with thanksgiving for, for how, uh, like David, even in affliction and in poverty, according to the world's standards, you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, you might ask tonight. You might be here and you haven't. So you, so you ask, why should I take him? Well, David would say, because he's good. And then the, the next question is, well, or the next reply is, prove that he's good. And David says, I can prove it. Look at my life. Look at, look at what he's done for me. I've proven it. And then here's, here's the objection. Well, how do I know, David, that that's just not your experience? How do I know he's not just good for you, but he'll actually be good for me? And to that, David can only say, taste and see. Try it for yourself. You won't be disappointed. Because all who, look to the, all who look to the Lord, none of them lack anything good, he says in verse 10. And so that's, that's the invitation. Are you willing to take it? Are you willing to receive it? If you've been with us in the evening services the past few weeks, we started a new series where we're looking at the, the orderedness of the world in, in nature and creation, the evidences of God in, in creation, how we can know he exists and he's real from, from natural law. And those things are really good and important. It's really important for us as, as Christians to be equipped with knowledge so that we can make a defense for our faith. But, but at the same time, the Christian faith is not just an exercise in intellect. 
The longer you are a Christian, the more you love Jesus, the deeper you know him, the harder it should be to put into words just who he is and what he's done. We should, in a sense, be like the ancient philosopher who, when asked, what is God, answered, I know if I'm not asked. It's, it's as though it's there, I, I have it, but I can't put it into words. I can't articulate it. And so I want to say that the soul that has leaned on Christ, that, that has lived for Christ, that has looked to Christ, that person, when asked, why should I believe, does not at first launch into a, a theoretical discourse on metaphysics or cosmology, but instead reflects back, on the Lord's goodness, the Lord's blessing that they've received in their own life, and then answers to this question, why should I believe? Why should I take this God? Answers almost with, with hands up in surrender with these simple words. You just have to taste and see. You won't be disappointed, brothers and sisters. Those who taste the Lord lack no good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who makes yourself known to us, that we can find you, that we can experience you fully. I ask that you would grant us such faith that we would taste you in the person of your son, that we would feast by faith on, on his body, on his blood, on his completed work, and that we would see you do all things well. We pray this in his name. Amen.